Welcome back to another episode of the Mr. Pronoia podcast. Today we're bringing in a good friend, Matt Blystone. Now Matt is out of Springfield, Missouri, and he is fresh off of a pasta retreat. So he's going to be going into what this is and some of the insights he experienced during this. We'll be covering a range of different topics, but among those are authenticity, fasting, We'll be even going into a little bit of human optimization along the lines of sauna, cold plunge, and float tanks. So, if everyone's ready, let's go ahead and jump in. We're back at it, guys. We got two mats with us. The only yeah. thing better than one mat's two of them. We got my brother here, Matt Blystone. We're excited to have you here, Matt. Welcome. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for bringing me in. It's good to meet you, Matt. Yeah, you as well. Heard a lot of <laughs> nice. good things. Nice. Well, I have too, so that's great. <laughs> Rex Rex attracts some cool people. Yeah, he does. I like to think the vibe attracts the tribe. We all attract each other. Be on the like-minded stuff, and you just pull you pull in the the people you vibe with. It's nice. It is interesting how that works, and how yeah, there is. It's almost like a tuning fork type thing. It's like when stuff with stuff similar, it vibe yeah, literally vibrates together, and it's weird how people work that way, in a way as well. Kind of have a magnetic pull to people towards you. It's yeah. whenever you are on a like-minded. For us, I know we're all kind of on the self-development, the truth path, if you will. And I feel like you get into a couple of those conversations and it helps those bonds grow exponentially real fast. You can connect with people. 100%. Yeah, it's definitely been a journey because I've changed so much throughout my life. And I've figured out what works and what doesn't for me. Eventually, once you get on that path of self-development, you're just bound to meet other people who are on that path because you've learned to cut out what is not that. So it narrows down what you're looking for. That's one of the better things about rolling with people who are like-minded and you have stuff in common is we can all share experiences on what's working and what's not working, what makes you feel better, what doesn't. And I feel like that just compounds the growth. You're able to hopefully learn from other people's experiences, having those conversations. Yeah, I think it's you can roll that also back to to living authentically to yourself. Because if you're not yeah, if you're not living true to yourself, then you're not going to be attracting the people that are true to you. And so like lots of times it's so easy, especially growing up, you said as time goes on, you start finding what you like and what you don't like. The value in that, just because when you find that, when you find out what you like and you lean into that, then other people that like that too. And you're like, whoa, there's a whole community around that. And yeah, it's just interesting because when you're younger, like when you're in just grade school, for instance, yeah, you're still figuring out what you like and what you don't like. And so I think, didn't I, I want to say on one of the last podcasts, Rex, you were mentioning how something your dad had said. Like life gets better as you get older because mm -hmm. you you start finding out what you like. Yeah, start seeing those patterns and it starts to make a little more sense. Mm -hmm. That word you said, authentic, it reminded me of a quote that I heard recently by Naval Ramakant. And he said, escape competition through authenticity. And I really like that quote because there is so much competition, in it, especially in our capitalist culture. I think inherently we just assume that others are competition in multiple different aspects. But I feel like there's a lot to be said about just being authentic and people recognizing that when something is genuine or authentic, 
it's different. It, it it's unique in its own way and competition can't really compete with something that's truly authentic and, and unique in its own way. One thing is that as you get older and you become more authentic, you're more able to detect when other people are being authentic as well. So if someone's coming at you with something that's just not really them, you notice it. And we were talking about somebody earlier in particular, and we're like, oh man, this guy is just, he's doing this thing. And we know he's got more than that. We know he's more capable than that. But he's got the base, the baseline, the heart. It's, he's still, he's still a part of the tribe, but he's got to get there. And so there's like different steps on the journey almost. Mm-hmm. And you can tell who's, and not that it sounds completely egoic to say, oh, I'm already here and this person's back there and they're trying to, but it, it's more like a, I've been through that lesson and I see them going through that lesson and you want to like take their hand and be like, Hey man, like I see what you're doing and I've been there and you don't have to do that. You can just be you and we'll love you like that as well. Even more. We'll love you you more. And like, what's the opposite of authentic? I guess like being a copycat, not original, just going with the flow, towing the line, being fake, being fake. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely doesn't seem sustainable to, to do something like that. I feel like people can see through that more and more. I agree that comes with age. It seems like for me as a 34 year old, I've noticed that over the years, you're able to just pick up on people pretty quick, whether it's fake or authentic or just a good person overall. I feel like you can start to pick up on that a lot faster as, as, as you age. Yeah. When you're young and you're in high school and stuff and you're going through adolescence, you just want people to like you. You want to be popular. You see the people who are popular and you're like, oh man, I want that. And I have this desire for that. And sometimes high school is a bad example, but sometimes people are popular because they're being authentic. They're like coming from their heart and every, people grav- gravitate towards that. And then when you get older, you start to realize, I don't really care so much about that. People are either, either accept me or they won't, but I have to accept me. And I'm not going to accept me if I'm pretending. I'm only going to accept me if I'm like being me. And a lot of times you got to figure out who me is. And honestly, that's a, a constant battle because you're growing constantly. You're constantly changing. So that's the truth. It takes reevaluation. Yeah. It's interesting to keep stripping it back too, because then you have the, there's even a, the levels to the who am I thing. Because then you have, that's actually like a yogic practice is self-inquiry of, I forgot what it's called. It's, I don't know. I know Ramana Maharshi is the, the big proponent of it, but it's just simply just like asking yourself, who am I? And then you start stripping it back. And so you start stripping it. You start with the most superficial level of like your name and then you strip it back a layer and it's like what you do. And then you strip it out a layer and it's what are your hobbies? And you just keep asking because you're not, it's almost like at each level you realize that you're not, that's not all you are. And eventually if you go back far enough, you just, I don't know, you just don't exist or something. I, I, I haven't got there yet to tell you. What, what came yeah. to mind for me? I would assume, I would assume I haven't done that practice. But I would assume you get just pure awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get to there and then, but then you, even that you're like an awareness viewing the awareness. So then 
It's like at what level? So then there's another awareness viewing the awareness. Cause, or yeah. eventually you just, yeah, then maybe you are just awareness. I don't know if that's what you were saying itself. And yeah, that's a, that'd be a seems like it'd be a beautiful place to, to sit in for a yeah. little while. <laughs> right. Uh, Alan Watts says a lot of stuff about that, about like reaching different levels of like almost spirituality in a way to where you're like, okay, I'm the observer watching the, you know, whatever the ego but then the ego attaches to that observer and then you jump a level and you're the observer watching the <laughs> egoic observer watching the the ego you know it's like this constant spiritual level upping of yourself almost in a way yeah so that is fascinating it's like where does that stop <laughs> yeah, like how many can it latch on to yeah yeah i'm getting an image of just a tier of people just looking over each other's shoulders they just keep going back and there's another person looking over the shoulder and another person over their shoulder so who knows that may just go into infinity because it is fast you can sit right here and you could just you can see what's right in front of you and anyone even listening to this you start out by just seeing the physical objects in front of you okay that's a layer and then you're thinking thoughts so that's another layer and then you just start sh zooming back and you can feel yourself being awareness in a sense. And it's just a trippy experience to sit in that while you're like being present and looking around. It's like, whoa, the, this whole experience gets a lot more trippier than just your everyday, what you're used to. It's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. So Matt Blystone, we brought you here for many reasons, you, we respect you a lot. You got a lot of knowledge, you're a good friend, but most importantly, you just got off of yeah. Vipassana. And yeah, was it yeah. 10 days? 10 days silent meditation. Yeah, I'd love for you to unfold that a little bit. And cool. what is yeah. Vipassana and how was your experience? Yeah, I appreciate the, the petting of the ego there at the beginning. It got me jazzed up to start talking about this. Yeah, Vipassana is, it's incredible, really. This was my second one. The first one I did was in California 12 years ago. So I was like, coming off of that one, I felt like it was the most beneficial thing I'd ever done in my life for myself. And then I've been trying to get into another one for years, but they've got, they're popular now. There's wait list. And if you don't apply the day that the application becomes available, like you're going to be on a wait list. And so you have to be on top of it. But yeah, you go, it's completely free. You go there, they feed you, they house you. It's all donation based started by a man, his name's S.N. Goenka. And he was originally from Burma and then started Vipassana in India. And then just, he was a businessman and had a lot of money. So he spread it all over the world, made these centers all over the, I think there's over 200 now, but yeah, it's, it's intense. It's, it's not easy. It's very difficult. You know, being silent is difficult. Being with your, it's, constantly can be difficult practicing meditation where you're setting for I was setting for six to eight hours a day in meditation wow and you were talking about it getting trippy it gets trippy there were definitely times where okay I'll get into it a little bit I wasn't going to talk a whole lot about this because I don't want to give people who may be doing it expectations of what they're going to find vipassana means observation so you should never try to achieve anything. The whole goal is to observe nature as it is. And you do that by scanning the body. 
So the first three days you start out learning Anapana. Anapana is a technique where you are observing the breath in its natural state. So you're not doing breath work. You're not doing pranayama. You are simply breathing and you're narrowing your focus. So you start out observing the inhalation and exhalation of your breath through your nostrils. And you eventually narrow it down to where you're focusing on a little point right here at the base of your septum. And you do that for three days and it basically sharpens your brain's awareness so that whenever you start Vipassana on the fourth day, you can scan your entire body and you'll feel subtle sensations on your entire body. In the meantime, what I experienced on day two and three is that when I wasn't meditating, I had constant music going on, just nonstop. And I asked the teacher about it and he said, your mind is rebelling because you are focusing it, you're concentrating your awareness and your mind is trying to distract you with all this other stuff. So whenever you experience that, focus on sensations as you're walking. So I do that. But then on, on day, it was funny because day two, I had London bridges falling down in my head. Day three, I had the song Royals by Lord for some reason. And by day four, I was like having Goenka's chanting in my head. So he chants during the Vipassana at the beginning of end and end of each one hour meditation. But by day three, I would like, I'd lay down in bed to go to sleep and I'd start dreaming before I fell asleep. I would close my eyes and I would conscious in my consciousness, I would look to my left and I'd see a New York city street. And then I'd look to my right and there'd be like open fields and cattle and stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, that's weird. Because I could look around with my consciousness and see this whole world. But then I could open my eyes and be back in my dorm. And so I thought that was pretty unique. I talked to my teacher about that. And oh, yes, yeah. whenever, whenever you continue down this path, you're going to experience a lot of that, various things. On the fourth day, when I started practicing Vipassana, I laid down to sleep one night and I saw bubbles around my room and I opened my eyes and the bubbles were still there. And I was like, whew, this is weird. So I stood up and the bubbles were around me. Like they weren't going away. <laughs> so at this point I'm like, oh man, am I, am I losing it? Am I losing my mind? It started, it started actually becoming a serious concern. I was like, because doing the Vipassana is doing it. It's a deep operation on your mind. You're basically, you're going in and rewiring your neural circuitry. And recent studies where they've done brain scans of Buddhist monks have proven that this is true. You're basically rewiring these neural pathways from observation to reaction. Your brain wants to automate everything. So it automatically wires stuff up so that you react quickly. That's not really that beneficial all the time. So if you can go in there and reconstruct what you react to versus what you actually have a chance to respond to, all of a sudden you're taking control of the, you're taking the wheel again. So if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're no longer like flipping, flipping them off and honking your horn or whatever. Most of us are 
stable enough where we're not doing that anyway. Not that's an instability. We're all under various stress loads for sure. <laughs> not that I haven't done that either. <laughs> or who knows? Yeah, who knows? But yeah, it, it does. It's doing a deep operation on your mind and you can feel it. You can totally feel it. And I asked the assistant teacher and he's just, don't worry. He's just keep with the practice. I promise you, this is just, it's part of it. Everybody goes through this stuff. Another thing I experienced was a huge sense of abandonment. Like I have abandonment issues just from life. I had four sisters who, half sisters who spontaneously disappeared when I was about three years old. So from the age of being born until I was three, I got passed around between my four sisters. And then about the age of three, they just disappeared. They went to live with their mom. And I didn't see them again until I was like 12 or something. So that was my immediate view of the world is this feminine energy that like comforted me disappeared immediately, spontaneously. So I started having, yeah, I started having those fears pop up. I had to deal with those. And that's part of it. That's part of the thing is, but what was interesting is some of it pops up and you can sit with it because you've been doing the meditation. Like around day six, I had a, a really... Uh, intense, bad mushroom trip pop up into my head when I was laying down to go to sleep. And like it felt like you were re-experiencing the whole thing or the, the emotions of it came up or visions or? The whole visual. I saw the situation through my eyes, but I didn't recognize it as my memory at first. And I was like, wow, this looks really intense. And then I was like, who's this woman looking at me? It was like I was in a dream again. And the woman looking at me was my girlfriend at the time, but I didn't recognize her. When I observed it, like, wow, this looks like a really scary experience. And I was like, oh my God, this was my experience. Wow. And then I was just like, wow, that's pretty crazy. And then I let it go. It was like, I just felt like it left me. Just like a cloud passing by. Yeah. yeah. Just drifting off. Yeah. That's yeah, interesting. Was that a tra was that a traumatic experience for you initially, the the mushroom trip? Do you feel like there was a, a purpose or a reason for you to maybe view that again or Yeah, absolutely. So in the Vipassana on the tradition, what you're doing is you're eliminating sankaras. Sankaras, how it was described as their reactions. But I would say that they're not just reactions, they're the neural pathway that was created based on an event that causes you to react. Mm. So whenever you're born, you're immediately encountering stimulus, painful stimulus, pleasurable stimulus. You're a child, so you don't know anything, but oh, I don't want that. Or oh, I do want that. So you're constantly creating these like reactions to these things because you're not conscious of it. You're just creating these. And so your brain's creating these neural pathways. Oh, that's pleasurable. I want it. Oh, that's painful. I don't want it. It sets you up for a lifetime of this. So. And it probably does it out of efficiency. I'm sure there is some tasks that it is probably beneficial to have those, but it's, I'm assuming it's whenever we let it go full bore and we don't ever check in with ourselves on these grooves, these neural pathways that we're digging, we just keep going deeper. 
And I know for me, I've never done a Vipassana. That's actually, I'm, I'm learning some from you here. It's a new word for me, but I'm, I'm sure that most people don't normally check in and try to rewire their brains. And I'm assuming as we get older, it's people get generally more stubborn and more stuck in their habits and stuff like that. So I feel like there's probably a correlation with that. Let those pathways get deeper and deeper as we get older. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it builds upon itself uh, actively, you know, it, you can do it on the surface level, which a lot of us do. A lot of us who are focused on self-development and, and growth, we do. We say, oh, that's not good for me. Even the people who have had addictions to things, and they're like, oh my God, I crave that. If I don't have it, I suffer. I got to get rid of this craving for that. I've got to abstain from that or anything, any of our habits. I'm curious for you, what was the more difficult part of the Vipassana? Was it, you said you were the meditating for six to eight hours a day? Was it the discomfort of sitting that long? Was it your mind that was just ready to get up and move? Or was it the, the abandonment stuff that kept creeping up? What was your biggest difficulty? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, the, the abandonment issues were tough. Um, every day is like a, it's like a roller coaster. You wake up at four, four thirty. you meditate, you eat breakfast at six 30. The morning meditation was usually good for me, but the afternoon meditation was really difficult. And a lot of the other people too were saying that's when that's about the time every day they were trying to figure out how to leave. Did you see many people leaving? They didn't make it the 10 days. No, there was like three or four out of how many, I want to say there was like 40 men and 40 women. Oh, wow. Bigger than I thought. Okay. Yeah. They're getting ready to expand on that facility and have it to where they could have 150 people of each gender, I think at one time. Yeah. How was the connecting with people? Were you able to, even though there's no words just through maybe your neighbor you're meditating Mm -hmm. with, or was there any connection there? Yeah. Another aspect is that you'll notice yourself trying to create stories about people because you don't have any input. So you're just, you're not supposed to look people in the eye or you're not supposed to talk to them. You're not supposed to sign to them or communicate in any way. You're supposed to pretend like you're the only one there and just work on the meditation. But you'll notice that you can start picking up on subtle aspects of people's energy and stuff. You'll just, whether it's you're observing like subtle body language or you're actually picking up on their vibration that day. It becomes the only way that you interact with them. So it's almost like it strengthens. I can imagine you probably become hypersensitive to people's energies. And I'm sure your intuition inherently raises at a high level. Meditating six to eight hours a day. I I can only imagine that all the extra information you're picking up out of the ether out there. Yeah, yeah, you do. And then also things became more vivid too. sounds looking at a tree, the sky, like everything seemed like more colorful, like more, there was more clarity, almost like your resolution was higher. You start noticing little things that you would have never noticed before. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's like you're purifying your mind of any like past or future thoughts. You're living completely in the present a lot of the time while you're there, or you're practicing to, 
and another interesting thing I found about that is it seems like at your fundamental base level of being that you are simply joy. Whenever you start cutting out these thoughts of the past or thoughts of the future, and you start just experiencing the present moment pretty consistently, it's so peaceful and it has so much, it's so full of joy. You're just naturally in a state of joy. And honestly, like I've missed that since I left because the outside world is, is very difficult to maintain that because you've got all your stuff going on. But when you're there and you are like walking around in this state, man, it's one of the most joyful experiences at times. And you're not doing anything. You're simply being. You don't need anything. That's You're completely satiated by existence. It's, <laughs> it's pretty wild. It's hard to put into words, but. It sounds like, very peaceful. Uh, yeah, it's very peaceful. But back to the hardest thing, the abandonment, but then also it, it is really painful sometimes to sit for an entire hour in the same position. And once you, on day five, I think you take a vow of strong determination where during the group sets in the meditation hall, you're not supposed to move at all. I mean, you could do like subtle movements where you like shift your weight or something like that, but you're supposed to, you're not supposed to change your posture. You're not supposed to move your hands or your legs or open your eyes, anything like that. I bet that one's extra hard. And that's another whole a layer of difficulty added on there, not moving at all. How long was that? How long are those sessions? They're an hour. Those are an hour. Yep. Okay. And then, so you said, so I guess you guys have multiple different sections, but in total it's six to eight hours a day. Yeah. So I think if you meditate for the full periods that they have on the schedule, I want to say it's nine or 10 hours. Wow. That you would be meditating. But unless you're extremely disciplined, I don't know that anybody's doing that. <laughs> I talked to a lot of guys afterwards who were like, oh, yeah, I just nap during those times, man. It was like, OK, <laughs> they're looking like they're meditating. Maybe, maybe, which, you know, I'm also guilty of sometimes. I'll oh, be yeah. like, oh, I'm going to meditate on my bed sitting against the wall where it's nice and cozy. And then, you know, sawing logs about five minutes later. I'm like, oh, this isn't really working. <laughs> <laughs> we're past the theta state yeah, yeah. <laughs> is yeah. the theta state sleeping or is that where you go in meditation so the theta state is whenever like i was talking about dreaming before i fell asleep so the theta brainwave is what you're in when you're in deep states of meditation or while you're dreaming mm. and and that also is the brainwave i believe might want to double check this but that's the brainwave where you're doing a lot of your neural repair and rest. So it would make sense that during that brainwave, you are able to rewire your neural pathway. So whenever you're floating in like a sensory deprivation tank, you know, a lot of times it induces a theta state. Point with the float tanks and you've actually been a big piece to introduce me to one of those and inform me on the benefits and all that. So how did you get involved with float tanks? So I was living in Portland and after my first Vipassana meditation, um, we had 
ran into a guy who was starting a, a float center in Portland. And I basically just started floating at that float center. Okay. Times. And yeah, I was, I was fresh out of Vipassana. So like within five minutes, I was, it's like meditation on steroids. And there's been Tibetan Buddhist monks who have used float tanks and they've said that they can achieve in one float states that they may reach like once or twice a year. Really? During meditation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it just it takes away all the other sensory stuff. So. Yeah, that makes sense. When you were talking about the Vipassana, that would seem to be the one of the big keys about it is taking away all the stimulation and just allowing yourself to go in. And even more so with the float tank, you're literally taking almost every sense sensation that that we have. It makes sense that it's almost like a forced meditation. If you're getting in a float tank, it's almost like you're forced to go within while you're in there. Even if you're opening your eyes, you're bored. You can't see the hand in front of your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no external input. Mm -hmm. There's only internal input, you know, so... Yeah, I heard Rogan say one time that he doesn't think that he would be who he is or where he is without the float tank. And it made me think, I was like, what is such a big benefit that he would say that? Because he has one of the biggest platforms in the world. So I was reflecting on that a little bit. And that's what I came to is that with the pressure with where he got up to and, and building the audience and people getting mad one way or the other, you can't, you can't win them all. And I think that just inherently having that pressure of getting up to that level, you have to have some type of self-reflection and going within and really just being able to cut out the stimulation from this outside world and go within and be able to really calculate all the different dynamics of everything that's going on. And yeah, it helped him to his point, but I feel like really anyone could use a float tank, especially if you're not really into meditation and all that. It just, it's such a good escape and allows you to really just reflect on your day or reflect on where you're at mentally or physically. And it's also really relaxing while you're in there. Yeah, it's super relaxing. There's a lot of physical benefits as well. Matt, have you ever floated? Yeah, I've used Rex's. Um, oh, nice. You, you had me thinking for, for people that don't have easy access to it, you can get a lot of close obviously not completely the same but if you're in a bath with like earplugs in lights mm -hmm. off like you get a lot of the effects because you can make the water temperature close to your body temperature and you're you, you feel yourself obviously touching the sides which when you're in a float tank you even that sensation's gone but yeah it's just it's very powerful. I know before trying yours, that was my version of a float tank. And it was something that I just gravitated towards not really realizing that was a, a thing people did was that we had float tanks. It was just yeah. always, that was my place to deal with stuff. It's if I was super just overwhelmed or felt like I had a lot of chaos going on in life, what you were talking about with in Rogan's case, it was it's just a sense of clarity that you can't really get in other places as easily. It's almost like a shortcut. And so, yeah, if people have access to a float tank, that's on steroids, but most people have access to a bath and can mm -hmm. enjoy some of those benefits. Cause yeah, when you're, when you don't have anything physical in front of you, then it's, it allows you to sort through 
a lot, a lot of the mental noise better. Yeah. Man, I'm actually glad you brought that up because it reminded me that where I floated, I used to take baths all the time for like relaxation and I'd put some candles up and stuff like that and get all nice and warm. And so, yeah, I remember now that whenever I was getting ready to float, I was like, dude, it's like a giant bathtub, <laughs> like a giant bathtub with no anything. Just, yeah, I feel bad. Yeah. They're under baths are underrated, dude. I don't I know a lot them, of though. dudes that that take them, so it's it's nice to to hear that I'm not the only one that enjoys a good bath. Yeah, <laughs> I love a good bath. Man. I love a good bath. There is another thing I wanted to touch on as far as vipassana because Siddhartha Gautama, who we all know as the Buddha, he was only one of thousands of Buddhas. There's been Buddhas before him. There's been Buddhas after him. But he was the Buddha who rediscovered the Vipassana technique. Um, and it was his way of uh, basically finishing the Eightfold Path, finishing the wisdom and insight part of the Eightfold Path. So the first part is Samasila, which is right morality, pretty much. And it's, it's right speech, right action, don't kill, don't steal, all that stuff. It's kind of that in almost every religion, it seems yeah. like, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So that's everybody feels that way. And then Sama Samadhi is the second part of that. And it's basically focus and concentration and stuff. That's where Anapana meditation comes in. So there was those two components. But he brought the third component, which is Samapanya. And that is uh, mindfulness or basically right wisdom and right insight. So basically, if you do all that other stuff, you've got the intellectual knowledge of the nature of reality. But until you do the Vipassana meditation, you don't actually experience the true nature of reality. And whenever he sat under the Bodhi tree and meditated for all that time until he reached enlightenment, he, he discovered that we're made of subatomic particles. He, he even put a number to it. I don't remember what it was, but it was pretty accurate. A scientist in the 1900s figured out about how many subatomic particles were made of. And it was pretty close to what the Buddha had said that he had observed through just meditation alone, which is crazy to me. It really is. He got his awareness to a point where he realized that we're just these subtle vibrations. And, and there's a... There's a milestone in Vipassana meditation. One of them is whenever you can do full body scans. Like if you can imagine taking like a Xerox copier and going from head to toe and just scanning your body and feeling a subtle sensation on every bit of your body. The next milestone is a state called Banga. And it is a total dissolution of your gross physical body. So basically you, you feel this sensation of your body being dissolved completely. And so it's interesting because that's a milestone, but it's also a very dangerous part to get to because it's so pleasurable that it's hard not to crave to get back there. The whole point is equanimity. Like you're not supposed to crave or be averse to any of these sensations that you're feeling. Like there's times you're scanning your body and you can't feel anything on a certain part. And being from a society where we're very goal oriented, 
you automatically are like craving to feel that sensation there. So you're working backwards. So you have to figure out how to just be like, okay, no sensation there, sensation there, no sensation there. You get to the painful sensations in your knees and your hips because you've been sitting for so long and you don't identify them as pain. You just say, oh, sensation. Before long, you start to really look into them. And when you really look into them, they are no longer pain. They're just vibration. And every now and then you get to this point where you feel this crazy, like your arm no longer feels like an arm. It feels like just this cloud of tingly energy. And it's just, it's crazy. That's, I think that's Banga. I'm not sure. I, I didn't ask the teacher about that, but there was times where like, I'd feel like my arm disappear into vibration wow. or my face a lot of times. Like one time my head just completely felt like just a cloud of vibration. So did you witness anyone else or do you have any stories with anyone else? Um, there was also within that group that was having some shy of psychedelic experiences like you were, you know, honestly, not a lot. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Was there ever a space at the end where people kind of shared their experiences or you get to hear any, anyone else's profound experience? Yeah. So at the very end you do, you get an entire afternoon and evening where you're talking with everybody. They set it up that way so that it's like a buffer before you get back into the real world. Mm. Uh, you can at least talk with the other meditators and there's this, there's this immense love and compassion for them. There's actually, the more you do Vipassana, the more compassion develops inside you, like somehow naturally. It's really interesting. It's almost like you were saying, that's like what we naturally are. You said like joy, it's yeah. like you strip it all. If you, if we really are that, that essence of joy, then compassion and all that stuff probably just flows so easily because that's what you are. Right. And so it's almost like it's, yeah, you could look at it as developing compa the compassion. You could also look at it as just like revealing the compassion that's just like already within you. Yeah. Mm, just fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's that's just, just it's almost like everything that stops us from being compassionate has to do with the thoughts that are in our minds, whether it's our judgments or you mentioned earlier, like profiling, putting mm -hmm. people in boxes, all those things that are all happening in in the thoughts that it sounds like the, these meditation techniques, they're slowly stripping the thoughts down. As, as you become more and more aware of them, they start to spread out. And as they go, a lot of the things that are hindering the joy and compassion from flowing through us, a lot of those hindrances are removed as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think another big aspect is, so this was all done, the four noble truths, life is suffering, which gets taken out of context. It's, it sounds super negative, but it's basically saying there's a lot of suffering in life. It's caused the noble truth too, is suffering is caused by craving and aversion or attachments to these cravings and aversions. Noble truth three is there is a way to end that. And then the fourth noble truth is the way to end that is the eightfold noble path. So I feel like whenever you are practicing that eightfold noble path, whenever you're at the Vipassana, you are, you're starting to realize that all this suffering that you're feeling is coming from within. 
And so you're starting to eliminate that. And then you start to become aware of, oh my God, all these other people are suffering too, needlessly. Like it's all coming from them, every single bit of it. And of course, things happen to us, you know, painful things happen to us, but like the attachment to those things and identifying with those things is what leads to the suffering. So it's almost happening on a mental level. Absolutely. Which is fascinating too, because you can look at, so like suffering can be different for everyone. And like, you could have someone who's has $10 million and they lose 5 million, they lose half of it. And like, they can experience immense suffering and they're like, still have $5 million. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas someone else can lose their dinner for the evening and that causes immense suffering. So it's weird how it's not the external thing that is causing it as much as the internal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Yeah, that's actually an example that he used during the evening discourse. Because every evening at the end of the daily meditations, Goenka has an hour and a half discourse where he explains some of the theory behind it, some of the ways to practice and why it's practiced like that. And yeah, an analogy he uses is basically, or not an analogy, but an example he uses is a rich man suffers the same as a poor man. It's like for totally different things. (laughs) Yeah, for totally different things. Well, it shows that, yeah, that external reality doesn't matter as much as our reactions to it. And circling back, you said something interesting that tied into how we started this whole podcast and it's like the who am I thing when you really Mm -hmm. start circling it back. It's like when you're applying it to suffering, another part of that, the technique of that other, the Maharshi guy is, it's like, who is suffering? And it's like really trying to dial that in because it's like, who really is suffering? Is it like, okay, it's me. Okay, like, who is that? And I think, interesting because yeah maybe if you trace it back far enough you yeah you realize that maybe you don't exist like you were talking about like your body doesn't like you you said that you were having these periods where you didn't feel like your arm existed or maybe you might have even blanked in and out of you existing and it's like this it you start to realize that the idea of you that that it's an it's, it's just an idea so it's just, it's a thought. It's actually the first thought that we've ever think. And that's a, an, another interesting thing. It's you have the I thought, which is the OG thought. Mm-hmm. And then every other thought that happens is all dependent on that original I thought. If you can go back far enough where you're before that I thought, there's just nothing, this you're is- gone. <laughs> and I bet you that meditation, I bet you those that's probably where you end up if you take it deep enough. What are your thoughts on that from what you got to taste doing it? That was a question that I had because we were taught in there that basically Siddhartha Gautama reached enlightenment. Upon reaching enlightenment, he stated that he now remembers every life he's ever lived and every life he's ran from birth to death. And he decided at that point, that life would be his last. He said that he was no longer going to incarnate into 
physical form. He was no longer attached to this thing. But supposedly, whenever you meditate, whenever you practice Vipassana meditation, each lifetime, you remove all these sankaras. And as you're removing the, these sankaras, upon death, there's a deep sankara that forms. That deep sankara ties you to your next life. So you go back to your next life. But you've already practiced Vipassana in your previous life and all these other things in the Eightfold Noble Path. So your karma is going to be better. Your ability to manage life is going to be better. So my question was like, why, if it keeps getting better, would you ever choose to not come back? And I was telling Rex this earlier, like I would come back to this life. It seems great. Like life seems wonderful. So if it, if I just got better at managing the suffering, it would be even more wonderful, right? So what is, what is after that? What is after that physical form? What is the I? And I, I had that question. So I asked my teacher, I was like, why wouldn't you choose to come back? And, and he, he didn't really have a very specific answer for me. He alluded, he said, depending on what you believe, there are higher planes. It seemed like he was trying not to be too specific because I'm not there yet. Plus you could tell somebody that, and if they haven't experienced that, like, what's it mean to them? And that's one thing that I really found interesting is Goenka even discussed that there are other things, but he can't teach them because the teaching has to go with the practice of them. So theory and practice must go hand in hand. So it indicated to me that there's a lot more to it, but you have to, you have to get to that level maybe. So when it comes to the dissolution of the physical form, it's almost, yeah, there is this flow of consciousness that attaches to this physical form. And because we are identifying with this physical form, that's where the suffering comes from. But when you reach that level of Banga and you're like, oh, the physical form is not even there. It's just this vibration. It's just this. And that's also where the there's no real separation between all of us, maybe. Which maybe that causes some compassion, too. So. Yeah, it's hard to imagine different realms without experiencing anything like that. I can only imagine the power that comes with realizing that everything is vibrations and frequencies and I, there's a levels of understanding that, you know, and I, I can say that I've read it in a book, but to fully experience that and realize that fully that everything's a vibration and frequency and to hold that mindset, I can only imagine the amount of power that would come with that and be able to manifest your heaven on earth and manipulate reality around you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found it interesting. So I went straight from Vipassana to Austin, Texas, and I was driving into Austin and it was a much bigger city than where I was at the Vipassana center in Kaufman. And what would normally stress me out or give me some anxiety 
driving into a big city. It was nothing. There was nothing but pure observation. Like someone pulled out in front of me. It was just simply, oh, someone pulled out in front of me. Oh, I missed my turn. It was, oh, I missed my turn. Uh, I was deeply in that state from the meditation. And it's, yeah, if you can stay at that point, if, if you can meditate a couple hours every day, morning and night, and stay with that, you are creating your heaven on earth. Maybe that's what, I think that's obviously what Christ was pointing towards with prayer and this immorality that he spoke of and the love thy neighbor and as yourself, because guess what? There's the same vibration. That same seed of consciousness. Yeah. So what is the eye? I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean if you knew, yeah, you'd probably you'd be gone. <laughs> you yeah. wouldn't have chosen to came back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To me, you know, thinking about like leveling up to that point where you have that grand perspective and you choose not to come back. To me, my gut tells me that you just you have the you have that grand perspective of that this is just the divine play this is the lila and i think that the reason we come here is to to learn and to evolve our consciousness and to have these tests or lessons if you will that are given to us and to keep accomplishing those and raising to a higher level and i would assume that there is maybe a point that you can hit to just see wow, this Lila was lovely and I've done my 10,000 incarnations and there maybe there's only so much to it once you get that vantage point. Right. Yeah, yeah it's interesting too to think about. There's times, I wonder if you can relate it to like when you're in flow state, when you think about it, you, you almost disappear in those states too. You're not conscious of yourself in those moments. And it's, or if you're watching, you've ever been to like a movie theater? I think Ram Dass uses this example. It's like you go to a movie theater and you're so engrossed in the movie that you don't even realize you're in a seat sitting and watching a screen. So like that you're gone there for a moment. And so I wonder if you, if there's ways to parallel those experiences to getting to that level to where yeah, you don't want to come back because you just you're all, all of the experiences at once. You're everything, but you're nothing. And and it, I wonder if it's that organic versus just like a conscious decision of I'm choosing not to come back. It's mm. more. It's just you. Just you lose yourself in it all. Yeah, I, th I think it's almost. Um, I'm definitely not at the level to understand why I wouldn't want to come back. Because obviously I'm attached to all the pleasures of life. It's apparent to me that if I'm no longer attached to those and I'm just existing in a state where okay, I could have that cake or I could not, I don't really care. I'm good. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Because they say that like all suffering comes from desire, right? Is it, That's what they say. So I mean, it makes sense if you can get that distance between your desires to realize that I'm actually really content and peaceful where I'm at. And it seems like that would mitigate a lot of the suffering that comes with it. Yeah. It's interesting too. So another, I always forget the word, but I know in Buddhism, there's this idea of you, you come back to just to help alleviate the suffering of others. It's like it's the word starts with a B. It's like, yeah, 
So maybe that also comes into play too. Even though you're content and stuff, it's you recognize that there's others out there that aren't. And it's coming back to play that role. And yeah, manifesting love through that, through right. helping alleviate suffering of others. It's a beautiful perspective because if they do have that higher vantage point, the, the bodhisattva, if they have that higher vantage point, then really they're looking at it like, I got to come back and save myself. It's not these other people suffering. It's I'm suffering. I have to come back and fix these billions of me out there. Yeah. <laughs> Just part of the, then becomes part of the play because there's like, there, there's that love aspect that comes with that. And it's love in a dynamic form. And it seems like no matter which way you look at it, love has a lot to do with while we're here. It's like various different religions keep coming back to that idea. And yeah, I mean, that, that role of coming back to, help relieve suffering what a what a great role yeah honestly you could say that like jesus played that role in a lot of ways and so you can see that template being played out in other religions beyond buddhism which is fascinating yeah i almost wonder if jesus wasn't a bodhisattva yeah it fit the bill it does fit the bill Mm -hmm. yeah and buddhists buddhists definitely considered jesus to be at the same level as the buddha as far as achieving enlightenment. Another aspect is Goenka talks about, he's completely non-religious for one. This is like these centers. He does some chanting and stuff. And there's honestly some times where it does feel a little like culty because of the chanting, because as a Westerner, I'm not used to that. You know what I mean? But the chanting is simply these like, of like devotion to, the end of suffering for all. And it's the stuff that could easily just, it could be said by Christ. It could be said by any saintly person, but it sound, it's coming from this Pali language and it sounds foreign and it sounds odd. And so, so I can see how like somebody who's a devout Christian could go in there and be like, Ooh, I don't know. I don't know what this is. He says over and over again, he's, this is for everybody. This method of meditation is for everybody. This is not Buddhist. The Buddha founded this, but the Buddha also never wanted Buddhist, just like the Christ never wanted Christians. He doesn't want people labeling themselves as something. He wants people doing the thing that he taught everybody to do. So it's like, you can call yourself something, but if you're not following the path, like what's the point of calling yourself that you're doing it, you're doing a disservice to the guy who like did all the work to show you the path. Missing the most important part. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Chants are fascinating because it's like when you think about we're talking about everything being vibration earlier, it's like Mm -hmm. a lot of those mantras hold a certain frequency. And as as you're chanting them over and over, you're almost tuning yourself to those those frequencies. And it's a powerful form in in all religion. It's no different than in the Christian faith, like singing the hymns. That's Mm -hmm. almost like a form of chanting. It's a way of tuning the mind to a certain level and it can be very powerful. Yeah. It seems like it could almost be trance inducing. And also I'm sure there's a benefit of getting everyone on the same page. Cause I'm assuming all the 80 people you said it was 80 of you guys, right? Yeah. About that. You know, all 80 of you guys are chanting together. Is that no, right? Oh, no. it's just the main guy. Yeah. Just go anchor chants. Okay. And I mean, he teaches you what the chants are in the discourses. 
Well, that would kind of defeat the purpose of you guys being silent if you're all chanting together. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. Okay. There is a point where you do, at the end of the meditations, he chants basically, may all beings be happy in Pali. And then everybody chants Sadhu, which is basically reinforcing what he just chanted. And it does, it sounds really culty at first when you hear it, especially because they draw it out. They're like, Sadhu. So it's like, what the heck is going on? But it's like, when you get over that and you see the benevolence in it, it's, oh, it's just a, a showing appreciation for the devotion to this idea of eliminating suffering and enhancing love and compassion. So I don't see anything wrong with that. It's like something everyone can agree on. Yeah. I'll play that game all day long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, at the end of every one hour meditation in the hall, about five minutes before it's over, you hear him break out, break the silence with Nietzsche. And it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. He's a horrible singer. But like, yeah, he's a horrible singer. His chants oftentimes, they sound bizarre, but there's nothing but love behind them. But you're in so much pain <laughs> at the end of these one hour meditations that the second you hear him chanting, you finally see a finish line to the meditation. You're just like, oh, thank God. I felt like my knees were going to explode sometimes. It was just like brutal pain. Oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure mentally too, like when you're not used to just being on guard for every single thought and like it's it's a, it sounds like a training ground i mean any kind of form of meditation yeah you mentioned your knees and your body but mm -hmm. just to to have sustained attention one pointed is i mean that's that's hard oh, for, for extended periods of time yeah it was brutal i was telling rex earlier that there was three common streams of thought that my mind would go down that i would catch myself and it was either I'd be thinking about playing Warzone with my homies or I'd be thinking about jujitsu and like how to defend against that or attack here. You know what I mean? Or I'd be thinking about sex. So those are the so 30 percent of my attention was drifting to one of those three things at any time. And then I'd be like, oh, wait, refocus. So it was, I guess those are my priorities. That's <laughs> it kind of shows you the hierarchy of priorities. Are you sitting there? <laughs> what makes us think just how much, yeah, we're at the mercy all throughout our days. I think that's what I find, a big thing I find fascinating about meditation practices is you're getting a window into your everyday minds. Like when you're walking in the grocery store, just like your everyday, household activities your mind is is running so what's it thinking about what's it going towards and yeah if you're never really aware it just it has a life of its own and your attention's going every which way whereas meditation it at least shows you and it helps you get back in the driver's seat instead of just it running amok yeah i'll notice that on a smaller scale with just like doing my morning meditations if I get on my phone or I'll, I'll watch a YouTube video or a little bit of podcast when I'm making breakfast or something, rather than going straight to the mat, I'll notice those little YouTube video, I, they'll start seeping up or I'm trying to keep my mind clear and it'll just start, just little things start bubbling up, that little podcast or something like that. So I can only imagine as you're sitting there for hours, it starts to become more apparent, like the stimulus, the things that you're allowing into your mind that are just keep coming up. Yeah. Yeah, the monkey mind, man, it's it's a real thing. And we don't 
most people don't do anything to mitigate it. It just, it runs all our lives. And especially with all the handheld entertainment we have and stuff, it just, it's a major issue. I think that people need to focus on finding ways to repair some of that in, in their brains because it's out of control in my opinion. I wish that like a 10 day Vipassana or something like that was a rite of passage that like maybe kids did as a introductory to adolescence or something. It's, oh, you're getting ready to go to high school. But before you go to high school, 10 day silent meditation, that way you can figure out how to not be attached to your suffering and not be craving this or being averse to that and how to like be more patient with others and more compassionate and less reactive. So there were some pretty young people at that. I think the youngest kid that was there was 19. Nice. And yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Going off that, I can only imagine the implications that would bring about our, on our culture. If you started doing that as a rite of passage, I've, I've heard people say recently, I've heard the term TikTok brain and it's concerning that's starting to even be a term that people claim that they have, because to me, that says that your attention span is just shot. If you've got TikTok brain, you can probably only focus for a few seconds at a time is I'm assuming I'm not on TikTok, but I'm assuming that's what that means. Or you just, you watch a bunch of reels. To me, that's also, it seems one of the reasons that we maybe you're seeing ADHD just through the roof as people's attention spans. We, we don't like that video, two seconds scroll, three seconds scroll. And that's programming your, your mind to, if you have something in front of you, like your homework, or your teacher talking, or your spouse talking to you, telling you about their, your day, you're just, you're literally just scrolling in your mind. You're not listening to your spouse talk about their day because you just scrolled and now you're thinking about something earlier in the day. And then that's probably lasting a few seconds before the next one's coming up. Inherently, that has to bring a bunch of anxiety or depression and a lack of focus at the very least. The opposite of meditation. And your brain is, is so plastic that it will literally become whatever you feed it. So if you're feeding it those two second videos, you're, you're teaching it that it's concentration only needs to be on two second, two second burst. You know what I mean? So one of the things I noticed, especially with Anapana, which you first learn is I got to a point where I could spend 20 minutes focusing on that little point at the base of my nostrils without any intrusive thoughts. I'd have an intrusive thought like maybe three times in an hour session. And I've never been able to do that before. Yeah, it's hard for me to fathom. And whenever you get to that point too, the theta state happens. Because I would like, I'd have people standing next to me. For some reason, it was always like, I would feel this presence. And then I would like in my peripheral vision, even though my eyes are closed, I'd see people standing like, just off to the side in front of me and I wouldn't pay any attention to them. I'd be like, no, I got to focus there. And they'd just stand there, but I could open my eyes and they wouldn't be there. There was a point where they assign you a room in the pagoda and the pagoda is awesome. It's a big circular. It's a traditional Buddhist meditation, like almost like a interesting shaped dome, but everybody gets a cell 
and you meditate in the cell. It's like a closet that's really quiet. And one thing I noticed is the sharper my, my attention got, the sharper my focus got, I start noticing vibration. I start hearing vibration and the vibration would get louder. And then all of a sudden I'd hear like a crystal singing bowl and it wasn't there. I don't know where it came from. I didn't make it. I'm just observing it. Or maybe I did make it. Who knows? Maybe it's my brain doing that. I likened things like that to on video games when you run across artifacts. Something that's like poking through a wall that's not supposed to or something. Mm -hmm. Or Yeah, it almost seemed like that. Like reality was giving me these artifacts that weren't really there, but. Yeah, maybe they weren't there. Maybe you're seeing stuff that is actually there. I've heard of people that can see ultraviolet auras around people mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I believe that it's there. I've never seen it, but when I hear people talk about seeing it, it makes me think that it's always there and I'm just not tapped in to mm. see it. So yeah. who knows? Maybe that sound you were hearing is a form of that constant uh, that it is always right. there or something like that. I was going to, I was very curious about that as well. The ohm thing that's, yeah, very interesting that you brought that up. And just the idea of this spec, the fact that we can only perceive such a small part of the spectrum. It's like maybe you're accessing more of the spectrum of more of the spectrum of light, the more, the deeper you go, instead of maybe that tiny sliver. It's like if you quadrupled that you're taking in and experiencing a lot more than our senses are used to taking in. Yeah. And you were, you were talking about stuff being like just a slightly more vibrant, a little more pop to it and falls in line with that too. Yeah, it does. What is the, what is the pure form of consciousness perceive if it's not having to see threat things through this physical vessel? Maybe that's because there was like in the pagoda, even there was times where I was meditating and I could see the room that I was in, but it was pitch black and my eyes were closed, but I could see it like it was clear as day. And I'd open my eyes and it'd be like pitch black. So it was like, I have seen it with my third eye, but I couldn't see it with my two eyes. <laughs> Dude, it's trippy. <laughs> and you just have to be like, okay, that's trippy because I have no other way to <laughs> explain it. Yeah. No reference point. It's first time experiencing that. So you're this, you experienced more of that on this Vipassana than you did the previous one. Though. Okay. So I'm glad you asked that. So the one years ago on day seven, I experienced two things that were extremely just crazy and unique. One of them was for some reason, I experienced a lot more back pain back then. And I would focus on where the knot was in my back. And I would focus so intently that I would pinpoint exactly where the knot was. I would then feel it get really hot and then get really icy cold. And then it would almost feel like pop rocks under my skin. And whenever it would do that, the knot would melt. And these bolts of icy electric energy would shoot like down to my fingertips and across my back and they would stop at another knot. And my entire arm would be tingling and I'd find this other knot where they stopped and I would dissolve that one. And then it would go to another knot and I would dissolve that one. Before long, my entire upper body was vibrating and it was extremely pleasurable. I asked the teacher at that point, 
at that center, you know, what's going on there? And he, the only thing he said is, oh, no, don't do that. And I was like, oh, and he's, no, just don't do that. And I'm like, okay. And he's, you will be craving those sensations. And I was like, you got a point, but still, I want to know what's up. Like, I'm already there, dude. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm already, like, <laughs> I'm already yeah, craving just, it. <laughs> I just want to know. And then another thing that happened later that day is during the evening meditation, I saw these two blue orbs and they were swirling towards me. And I was remaining completely equanimous and not paying attention to them. So I was remaining what I would uh, imagine was in the theta state. And as I got closer, I realized the orbs were on the foreheads of these two humanoid figures. I couldn't tell detail. I just saw the shadowy and I was like, okay. And then all of a sudden I started noticing that I was actually in a, what appeared to be like a conference area and people were walking around me. And as they were walking, they were like looking down at me, like the hell is this guy doing in the middle of the floor? And, uh, as the blue lights got closer, I started to pay more attention. And as soon as I did that, it kicked me out of the theta state. Cause you, what happens is you go in, once you start analyzing, you go back up to beta. You're no longer in the theta brainwave. So any kind of thing that is not echo causes you to get booted out of the theta. You just have to be indifferent to what is going on. Don't pay too much attention to it. It's fascinating. I've tried to do lucid dreaming a few times, and that was very similar to my experience with lucid dreaming. And mm. you said with sleeping, you go into theta state. So it makes a lot of sense. But I, whenever I was trying to do lucid dreaming, I would get into these really cool environments and start being able to experience different things. But then whenever I started to question either, am I asleep or just trying to, like you said, analyze the situation? Why is that car upside down, but still driving? Whatever, little things like that, it would popped me right out of it. And I noticed that was a common theme. Every time I would start to get something going good or if I would get excited, oh, I'm lucid dreaming. Boom, I'm right out of it. So yeah, it seems to be a common thing there. Absolutely. In fact, I asked the teacher this time about some of those visions I was having whenever I was sleeping. And he's, oh yes, he's, it's a lucid dream. He said, you can eventually play around with that if you want. And you know, get pretty good at it, but that's not what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, good point. Good to know that I can explore that at some point without being so rigid. Like, So know. on the last Vipassana, they were a little bit more strict, didn't really encourage you to go into the body scanning with the pleasure and all that. But this Vipassana you were just on, they weren't discouraging you to do that with the body scanning? So the body scan, that's, that's what it is. Um, but the teacher this time was way more, I don't know if he had less of a language barrier or not. It seemed like the teacher from the one that I did 12 years ago, like maybe he didn't know a whole lot of English. So he wasn't able to say much more than no, no, don't do that. Mm. I don't know. I only asked him one question that one time. I see. Okay. Uh, this one, I had been asking him several questions. And so. It's so cool that something so profound and powerful like that and can potentially be life-changing for people is free. When you explain an experience like that and you know they're putting you up for 10 days and they're feeding you multiple meals a day and all that, mo most people would assume that's probably a high ticket mm -hmm. experience. So it's super cool to hear that someone as 
nearly devoted his life, it sounds like, to making these different centers and really trying to make a big impact on people. Yeah. Keeps it pure, it seems like. And that's what he says, is it has to be that way to keep it pure. Um, and actually, the story about how he got into it is really interesting because um, the Buddha's teachings had been lost to India for, you know, a couple thousand years. Um, but they were kept in their purity by two teachers in Burma who he was fortunate enough to run into because he had bad migraines and he was trying to figure out a way to get rid of his migraines. There was also, and I don't know how much of this is accurate or not, but he talks about how there was also this prophecy that 2,500 years after the Buddha's death, that his teachings would resurface and be spread around the world. 2,500 years after his death is when Goenka encountered his teachings from these teachers in Burma and just so happened to have been incarnated into a family that had a lot of money, enough money to where he was like talking with the politics. He was friends with the politicians and stuff in Burma and, and India and stuff and was able to take this money and spread the Buddha's teachings around the world. It's, it's interesting to think that if there was this prophecy, that it actually happened and that this guy was actually the guy that was supposed to receive that valuable gift and then spread it for all of humanity. And I think we're coming into this point, I talk about it all the time where it feels like things are changing a bit, right? It feels like people are starting to say, Hey, like we're, we've been headed down a path. That's the end of it's not really where we want to end up. And people are going to these centers more and the wait lists are getting longer and they're having to build bigger centers. People are hungry for the suffering to end. They see this as a way and they're hungry to reconnect to their Sangha or their community. This is a way. It's a way to become a valuable beacon for others as well. Whenever you can regain control of your mind and live in a state of compassion and joy, like that transfers. So hundred percent. I was curious, how were your days following when you left? I know you said you went to Austin and you shared a little bit with your experience driving through traffic and just having that contentness about you. How were your few days after that, after you left? They were, yeah, they were still pretty good. I had a insatiable desire to get back to my life in Springfield and start working on things and, and yeah, but I kept, I'd meditate an hour every morning, sometimes not a full hour, but I'd try to get an hour in a day. Uh, it's been rough trying to get anything I've been getting some time. I definitely haven't been as disciplined, <laughs> but yeah, the meditations I, where I have done and set for an entire hour since I've been back have been like really nice and really juicy and have taken me back to that space. So I don't feel like I've drifted too far from where I was at, but I, d I do want to continue. And honestly, I have been way more balanced, way more level-headed, way more able to see 
where other people are coming from instead of just getting like angry and irritable at them. You see, oh, this person's, the, the way they're behaving is not because of me, it's because of them. And yeah. Do you feel like you had heightened intuition or anything else as a byproduct of spending those 10 days in solitude and silence like that? The clarity, the, the mental clarity that you have is definitely leveled up. You have a lot less like intrusive thoughts coming up. So you're able to see what you're trying to do throughout the day and make that happen a lot easier. Your brain's, it seems like your mind's a lot more organized. It's more creative. That's that's another thing that was really interesting about it is the visualizations that you have are way more vivid. Yeah. And, you know, just even though you're trying to have no thoughts, inevitably you're going to have thoughts come up. And I can imagine that while you were in that space, you were probably having business thoughts come up or what have you. And it seems like it would give you a nice playing field, a nice mental space to play chess, if you will, and think three to five steps ahead, where if you have this stimulation and you have a lot of distractions going on, and sometimes it's hard to think strategically in life with your goals, whatever that is. I feel like that would give you a nice playing field to either plan stuff out, or even if you want to go to a visualization to where you're trying to imagine a, a better future for your goal, I can imagine that it would just giving you a really potentially good spot to, to bring all that up and clearly see where you're going. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think that they said Nikola Tesla was able to see all of his experiments and all of his like inventions, like in his mind's eye, I think he even had synesthesia and could see it like floating before him, but an ability that I think you can obtain pretty easily through Vipassana is constructing visualizations with so much more organization and staying power. It's almost like you can, you know how sometimes when you visualize stuff, it's hard to construct something really large without something over here going away. If there's only so much like RAM construct something, but whenever you are in these deepened states of meditation, and your mind is much more focused and concentrated, it seems like you can build much greater to use wording that you would relate to like 3D modeling. Seeing the full texture and almost stepping into the environment of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which it almost seems like lucid dreaming on a way more conscious scale. It's fascinating. You, you bring that up in that you reminded me of something it hasn't happened in a while, but every once in a while, I'll wake up in the morning and there's this state I can enter. It reminded me of what you were talking about when you're, it's almost like you're dreaming. But in that, in this state, it's, I know that I'm awake, but when I start picturing stuff in my mind, it becomes like hyper realistic to where if I picture a tree uh, and like a belief of a tree, I'm like looking at a leaf as, as clear as if I were to walk outside right now and look at a leaf. And so it's, I don't know if maybe 
just because I'm coming out of a sleep, I'm coming out. So I'm just like catching the tail end maybe of those, like the theta, whatever that, that state is that mm -hmm. you're talking about. But I, I feel like I could, I, I tasted it because it's, I'm consciously building. I'm constant. In, when I'm in that state, I'm like, okay, what's it like if I'm looking at a tree and but it's interesting, too, because I can tie it back into what you were talking about with your lucid dreaming. If I get too attached to, whoa, this is I'm looking at a real tree, I start to lose it and then it fades away. And it's like that. And it's weird because I, I can't always it's just random when that comes. It's every once in a while, like once every few months, I'll happen to enter it and I'll just be blown away because it's like, wow, this mind is so amazing that it can recreate something with my eyes closed. And it sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah, you get to that state where that becomes your visualization, where you're building stuff and it's that real. And it's just mind blowing mind-blowing yeah yeah i can't imagine what monks with thirty thousand hours of meditation are capable of you know what i mean part of me thinks once you get to that state that you can just experience whatever reality you want because there's even been times where i've meditated and i've smoked some weed and my visualization capabilities got so vibrant that it felt like I was there. It was like, oh, wow, I'm like, I'm constructing whatever I want and I'm feeling it. I've had that happen a couple of times. It's very rare, but twice specifically I can think of. And one of them was where I could think of traveling anywhere and go there. And I remember one particular spot I almost imagine myself to be like a bird flying over the ocean and I could feel the wind on my arms and like the mist from the ocean waves cresting and the realness of it was mind blowing and something I'll never forget. It's hard to get to those spots. I remember that I was laying down trying to sleep and it was about like 45 minutes in and it just came out of nowhere and it was something I was able to experience for probably like 20 to 30 minutes. And it was so fun. So fun. I, I would love to be able to get back there on a regular basis. I guess it takes just learning the practices and learning what, what can get you there and just refining that down. And it sounds like this Vipassana is an easy, not an easy road to get there. I'd say the Vipassana is a shortcut to get to those states is what I'm getting. I think it's the, it's the boot camp that you almost need to devote that much time to meditation to you to where you get to the point where you're able to meditate long enough to get into those states because the teacher would tell you that you're not making those happen those are happening because that is the nature of reality at that given point in time he would tell you not to try to make stuff like that happen which Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Maybe he was telling me that because he didn't want me to crave to get there. That, yeah. that wasn't where a person who's done two Vipassana is supposed to be focusing. It just seems like there's some stuff that they're like, yeah, don't, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be doing this. But maybe if you've done a 20 day or a 30 day, which they have, maybe they're like, actually, you can do some of this too. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. The whole, you know, staying away from, 
desire or you know staying away from negative emotions it's easy for me to understand and but then you start going into oh that's pleasurable so you don't want to do that and you don't want to desire these things these positive things because it's it's going to inherently bring suffering with it that's a bigger one for me to swallow and i know, I know it's the truth but intellectually i i feel like i understand it but i don't that's not i it's something i need to pick up my practice on because I see the shiny gold things in front of me and just naturally I want to visualize having them and go and experiencing it all. And my insight falls a little short on just completely grasping the whole, even though it's good and it, it's, it may look like fun or feel good or whatever, that's still part of not riding that full balance. Yeah. And so that would, uh, that would almost take you into, um, you could talk about Tantra. And how there's red tantra versus white tantra and how white tantra is more of like the monk-like abstinence from all things that are like pleasurable and this and that whereas red tantra is just like a no try everything with the mindfulness that like it's impermanent so try everything but don't attach to it so supposedly red tantra is a quicker path to enlightenment but it's a much more dangerous path because it's much easier to get attached to all these pleasures, right? So, because I struggled with that for a long time too. I was like, I'd rather suffer and enjoy some of these pleasures than not get to enjoy some of these pleasures. But what if you could do both? What if you could enjoy the cake and then not be so fucking upset by it not being there after you just ate it? It's like the the pink tantra, you know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, the yeah, middle, yeah. middle path. It makes me wonder if it all comes back down to that baseline that kind of the baseline contrast theory when you have these desires. And so maybe that's the trap is because then it's always more, it's always the next one. It's always the next one. Whereas the opposite is getting to that state where it's just being is like mind blowing. If you lower your baseline low enough to where, yeah, just going on a walk is just like, ringing your bell as rex likes to say <laughs> then it's and then at that point how anything extra is just whoa whereas like the opposite end of that is then you get in that like manifestation trap where it's oh i want i want this and then so you get it and then as you develop these and then and other in the i don't know if in buddhism they call it this but i know in maybe hinduism they call it like the cities which is mm -hmm. like powers in a sense and it's like your manifestation abilities increase as you become more in tune and even in that philosophy they talk about how the cities are traps in the same way that you're saying that the the buddhist teacher talked about it as well it's yeah that's there but they're almost they can be a trap because they prevent you from going to the real stuff it's like the real stuff is in that equanimity it's in that contentment because you're lowering your baseline to where just being becomes pleasurable because then you're not needing something to give you that. It's like just being alive is pleasure in itself. And if you can get to that state, then you're getting that, that it's like that, that example we were talking about with that, the guy that has $10 million and he loses 5 million and he's suffering. It's like the reverse of that it's like the positive form of that to where your pleasure is that sensitive to where you need 
you don't need to get anything else. It's just being alive is like the most pleasurable experience. And so you're almost writing that feeling that you would get by obtaining some kind of pleasure, but that you're old, you're in that state always. Mm. And it's, if you can get there, it's whoa. That seems like that would be a pretty sweet gig. Yeah, that is the gig. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like let's say that you want to manifest your dream car. Then the next battle after that, if you're living the red tantra, would seem to me of not having any fear of losing it. Let's say you got big payments on it or whatever, and you may let that fear overwhelm you of, man, I, this is my dream car. I hope that I don't lose this somehow. Or let's say that or you're trying to manifest some traveling experience or just some experience in general that you've really been looking forward to. Then, you know, the next battle would be not being worried that it might end short or that not while you're in the moment, not being concerned that what time is this thing over? Am I about to get, is this about to be in? Is this about to be done? So I feel like when you call these things in, half the battle is not being attached to them, not being afraid it's going to be ripped out from underneath you or something like that. I, th I think that's it. I think it's the attachment to them because why not experience these things? You know what I mean? They're not saying don't eat delicious foods or this or that. They're pretty much saying, because honestly, if you look at the second noble truth, it's the attachment to those things. The craving and aversion is having a, an attachment to a different reality. If you're not attached to a different reality and you're experiencing the reality as it is, the reality as it is could be you're eating this piece of cake and it's delicious. That's it. Don't crave for you not to have this delicious cake because it's pleasurable because that would, it would be the same thing. But yeah, you guys were talking about, I think it was on your second episode about the hedonic treadmill. And that's what you were alluding to, Matt, is I think you were alluding to it as well is that, okay, you have this. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing that brings me pleasure? People do that. When they're so focused on having something external bring them pleasure, then they're completely escaping or ignoring the reality that like they bring them pleasure. And I think you guys were talking in that same episode about manifestation and how whenever you're like visualizing that thing that you want and you're really feeling it. And this is what I learned a long time ago when I was following Abraham Hicks. And she's basically tricking people into Buddhism in a way by having them visualize this life that they want, the things that they want and visualize it so deeply that they feel it. And then they're already getting the feeling of having it. That feeling's coming from within them. Mm -hmm. It's nothing external whatsoever. At that point, do you need that thing anymore? It's like, Shortcut. <laughs> yeah, you just hacked your stressing to think that really any item or any experience really can, I guess you can track it back to just thing to get that you assume that that bring. Imagine if everyone realized that in ourselves to, I'm sure everyone until you're an enlightened being, you, everyone has that to the extent, but imagine 
a society that realizes that. <laughs> Especially a society so s- steeped in materialism. And consumerism. And consumerism, yeah. where that's the, that is the default framework is no, it's this, these clothes, these new clothes that are going to bring me this feeling that I seek. And oh, no, I know it's must be the new car that's going to do it. Oh, no, it must be the boat or it must be the bigger house. That's it. It's a bigger house. <laughs> this house. Would, and so, it's, it, yeah, it never ends. It's this. Yeah, it's that tread that treadmill you're talking about, but it's it's there. You're the it's the feeling you're after, not the thing. And right. so, just shortcut it. Mm-hmm. Let's go for the feeling. Mm-hmm. And we've been pumped this illusion in our society because the people who benefit from that the most have all those things, and they they have all those things because they've tricked everybody else into thinking that they have to have those things in order to be happy like that. But the reality is like us trying to get those things is giving those people those things and then they're happy like that. But a lot of times it's this, I'm not gonna speak for them, but a lot of times it seems if you take that away from them, they're not happy like anymore. You know what I mean? Because they're using these things to make them happy. And I use those things to make me happy. I'm not saying that I'm any different. I get stuff all the time that I think is going to make me happy. And it does. It's just not really sustainable in the long term. Or it causes me to give up a lot of my freedom to like work for something that I think is going to make me happy. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it's, eh, is that really what was making me happy? Or if, if I meditate enough, am I going to realize that it's, that wasn't it? You That's know? what came up for me when, when Matt a second ago is that, you know, Chasing this hedonic trip leads us to spending the majority of our time for a lot of us working jobs that we don't really care to work. And then we come back and then we're spending the money on things that we don't really need just to keep up with the Smiths, really, when you break it down. And that that's a minimalist view of it. A lot of us, of course, we're working to put a roof over our head and, and food and all that. But I think that if you dial it back and let's say we all jump off the hedonic treadmill, I don't know if we would need to work 40 hours a week. I, I would like to think that we could probably get by on a little less than that and have a little bit more leisure time and probably more pleasure that would come along with it. It's a very good point. Yeah. Cause yeah, to manifest, you still have to give something for it. So, yeah. You want to manifest a new boat to see you can definitely get the boat but you have to, to put your time in and there goes your freedom as you're talking about and that never ends too and it gets it probably gets harder and harder the bigger the items get to where you have people that are yeah working a whole life hard for stuff that ultimately is bringing pleasure that's not really real not authentic it's like temporary if it's temporary, it's not real. It's like, we want the good. Give me the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that top shelf. Yeah, give me that Reggie stuff. Like, I want the, the real, the, the joy. Yeah. And, I, and I've always thought of joy as different than pleasure. It's like pleasure seems temporary, whereas joy, as you were talking about earlier, just seems like it's that natural state that peeks its head out when conditions are right and when we strip it all back. And yeah, how do we get back to sitting in that feeling of joy? Yeah. That's a fun place to hang out. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with 
obtaining some of these things. If you got a boat, that's awesome. Mm. I'll wake surf off that thing. <laughs> sure, all day. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's, I think every individual has to just make up their mind where they want to be at for them and not strive to keep up with the Smiths. Like, what do you want in your life? I think our society's sick because everybody's trying to get all this stuff because they think that's where the pleasure's coming from. But a lot of times, if you do what you find pleasurable and that's your livelihood, a lot of times you manifest those items anyway because you're doing what you love to do without the intention of, oh, I'm going to do this thing I love to do to get all this money. You just so happen to happen into it. And so I feel like someday I'm, I'm might be a millionaire and I think it's going to be by accident. It's not necessarily trying. I'm just like really interested in bringing wellness to people and creating wellness centers and creating an opportunity for other people to find ways to achieve what they want as well through, through taking care of themselves, through meditation, through the services I offer at my wellness center, just making it accessible for people so that they could get into those states where they're not just driving themselves into madness by continually trying to get somewhere that's may or may not bring them happiness. Sure. In a sauna for any amount of time, 10, 20 minutes, you're talking about it lowering your baseline. So that works through some of these physical hacks too. Like you sit in a sauna, you sit in a cold plunge, you will create a mental state. And it actually, they know what it does. It increases dynorphin, which is the, the chemical that makes you want to get out of it. And dynorphin increases the sensitivity of your, I think it's your mu opioid receptors in your brain, which are responsible for binding to endorphins. So it makes them have a higher affinity to endorphins. So you're more sensitive to endorphins. So by being in a sauna and being miserable from the dynorphins, it makes you more sensitive to endorphins. So it increases your likelihood that just being out in your day-to-day -day life, you're going to be more happy. It's like anything, yeah. It's like you get out of that, those ice waters or the the heat, and it's just anything but that. Great, <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm a big fan of that kind of suffering, honestly. Just yeah. like controlled suffering, in yeah, a way. like self-imposed controlled suffering. Absolutely. Well, then yeah. also, then when life does hit you with some, just hit you because it does. It's like you handle it better because you're, you're used to taking it. You're used to taking the docs. And so when you get when you yeah, when you get these adversities in life, you're no stranger to them. It's I'm yeah. putting myself through many adversities every every day, every other day, whether it's in the sauna, whether it's in the cold exposure or even just working out people like go on runs. Those are like little mini adversities. Yeah. And it, yeah, it carries over to the. Yeah, just the, the many adversities of, of everyone's life that everyone has and that are un, unavoidable over the course of a lifetime. And it's just, yeah, you're, you, it helps you suit up a little better. 
Yeah. Do you feel it, Rex? Because you've been doing some fasting lately. Do you? Uh, how do you feel about that? How has that affected your life and your? So I had never fasted before my whole life until probably about two or three months ago, and. I, I wanted to get into it because I have a lot of friends around me that are into it. And you're definitely one of them, Matt, is just constantly telling me the benefits of it. And without me ever trying to fast, I told myself that, man, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to work for that day and I'm going to be cranky. I'm going to be hangry and I better lock myself in the studio and just stay away. I don't want to bark at Maria or whatever. I had all these preconceived notions in my head that I'm just not going to be at my best and trying out fasting. I realized that a lot of that story was false. And in fact, I had more energy and more focus and clarity while I'm in the fasted state. I know there's a lot of physical benefits from it. I do it for more of a, a spiritual reason, just reading these different books and when the Bible and I'm sure almost all spiritual texts hype up fasting. So I've been taking note over that for a while, but it was just really intimidated by it. But I would say one of the main benefits I've got from it is my relationship with food has changed to the point where it just was generally uncomfortable and, and anxiety provoking to go into a deep hunger. Um, now I can realize the difference between being hungry and actually my mood degrading over time is there's a larger gap between all of that. And I, I think that it transfers into other things. That different relationship with food has given me, a, I think, a, I feel like a little bit of more distance between my thoughts and reactions as well. I feel like that transfers over into a couple other things. Besides the mental aspects of it, I've, I've always told myself that if I'm not eating enough protein and all this that I'm going to see it in my aesthetic. I'm going to start losing a bunch of muscle or I'm going to shrivel up from not eating for a day or two. And that's actually been close to the opposite. I've seen a lot of muscle growth from it. And I've seen a lot of more cutting and more sculpting of, of the body than I actually had seen over years. I'd hit a plateau working out and just trying to get more definition and whatnot. The fasting has kicked that in a high gear. I didn't expect that at all. And I would assume a big part of that is, and Matt, you, you may know the numbers better than me, but what do they say after like between 18 and 24 hours fasting, your testosterone just skyrockets. And I, I think that's a lot of the benefits that I can feel. Plus the fat kid in me, I just love knowing that I'm going to get to just gorge myself at the end of the day, if you will. <laughs> like I got some calories to catch yeah. up on. I haven't eaten in a day and a half and it's being able to look forward to that meal. I have found more pleasure in that than eating throughout the day. Delay gratification has become a, a new thing that I'm really realizing that I like that uh, just comes with the fasting part of it. But yeah, it's something that I started doing a fast every Monday. And are you still fasting every Monday, Matt? Uh, I have not since I got out of Vipassana. 
Okay. But you got me on that. So I'm expecting you to join back with me. Oh, I, pl- I plan to. Yeah, I plan to this next one. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Matt and I have traditionally the past couple months been fasting on Mondays. So it's, it's nice to have a fasting buddy with. And in fact, Maria jumped in recently. So nice. there's a few of us fasting on Mondays now. Have you done a 48 yet? No, I did a 36, but not a 48 nice. yet. Okay. I did a 48 the week before I went to Vipassana. And two hours, no, it was two weeks before the Vipassana and two hours before my, my meal, I did uh deadlifts and I had the best, like best deadlifts I've ever done, man. I told the guy at the gym, I was like, yeah, I'm like 44 hours fasted and he's like, oh, that doesn't sound good at all, man. That's a, that's not a recipe for success. And I was like. I don't know, bro. We'll see. And then after afterwards, I was like, dude, I just smashed my PR on deadlifts, bro. What's up? <laughs> What's up? <laughs> it's because while you're fasting, your body's, oh, I got to burn these fat reserves. And also, hey, let's toss some adrenaline in there. And yeah, your testosterone and your human growth hormones boosted up to about 48. But they say when you get closer to 72, you start to actually see some muscle wasting and stuff. But 48 is a pretty solid, pretty solid time span to, to do fasting. And you're right. That mill that you break your fast with, dude, it's the most delicious thing you ever eat. It's so good. Did you start to appreciate the food more? Uh-huh. Like you were saying. It's like we were talking about earlier. You have that delayed gratification or the hungry woman that has the two crackers. It falls into that realm. It's like that delayed gratification just builds that pleasure up so much more. Yeah, give that. It's like your your baseline's changing too. It's like lowering, lowering, lowering. Then you finally get food when it's like super low. So it's just like even a cracker at that point. <laughs> We're back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's just like powerful to be able to have control over such a dominant sense. It's like you have these five senses that are like controlling things. Uh, in, a, in a lot of aspects and it's like a, the the power of to have control over your tongue is just like, takes a lot it's a power that's a powerful one it's such mm. a primal I mean, it's connected in a lot of ways to like life or death from a primal aspect of you need food to survive to be alive and to just to be able to override that is yeah there's something to the mental benefits of that and the discipline aspects of it for sure and yeah. then, yeah, and then all the other the, the physical benefits, like cherry on top of all that. Do you know much about it? It changes your, I guess, yellow fat into brown fat. Do you know much about that? It's the cold plunge. Oh, it's the cold plunge. The cold that's plunge, that. that's it. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So what does that mean when you have brown fat? Is that more blood's going through it or more oxygen? So, yeah, you have more mitochondria in those cells so you'll have my, more so your cells become and they call it brown fat because it the mitochondria make it look more brown and basically more mitochondria means more metabolism so you have more metabolism going on you're able to burn fat more plus like they have more blood vessels that come to them because they need more nourishment so you're building up more brown fat. That means that you can warm up quicker if you need to. And that's why people become adapted to the cold plunge. You start out doing maybe five seconds with one toe in. 
And then <laughs> you're like, oh, that's all I can do. And then before you know it, you're doing like three minutes with your whole body submerged to your jawline or whatever. A bit if you do it regularly, it sounds Yeah, like cold plunge will, it'll help people reduce body fat, which is really interesting. It really is. Sauna will too, because it's basically induced cardiovascular exercise. So both those things. Fascinating. And yeah, Matt, so once you bring him back up the word theta, let us know what you do. Theta Wellness Center is uh, when I first started it in Springfield, Missouri. Started out with three float tanks. Um, two years into it, I decided to rent the space next to me and double our size and add two massage rooms and an infrared sauna and then another float tank. So I had four float tanks, two massage rooms, and infrared sauna. Later on down the line, I started hearing about, oh, actually, the finished sauna with the higher temperatures seems to have even a whole other list of benefits so i built one of those and put a cold plunge in that room as well because all the research had been pointing to these benefits that come from cold exposure so yeah so now i've got two massage rooms two float rooms finished sauna cold plunge and infrared sauna but i'm actually about to i think i'm about to get rid of the infrared sauna and put in a i just ordered an opus sound bed so what is that yeah so <laughs> it's like what we're wanting to do but it's a, a sound bed that basically has transducers in it and you lay on it with earphones and like a blindfold and it like has these programmed music and sound waves that like pulse through your body depending okay. on what you're wanting so those transducers are just sending vibrations are they going with the music the vibrations up I believe so. Yeah. So I'm about to put that in and also maybe install another finished sauna because, I mean, it's been over 100 degrees and that thing's still getting booked out. Nice. You know? I like, love to see it, man. At our gym, Matt Frasick and I, we go to the same gym and man, it's crazy to see. We were in there the other day. I don't know if you could have fit another person in there. And it's, it's, yeah, in the sauna. It's so cool to see how popular it's getting. And I think that's probably with the rise of podcasting. Just, human optimization and starting to become a more and more popular thing. And it's beautiful to see that people are genuinely interested in just bettering themselves in all aspects. Yeah, it's totally due to the rise of podcasting. And then also that, that Finnish study that was a 20 year study that was done that showed like 50% reductions in risk of Alzheimer's and dementia and cardiovascular disease and all cause mortality. Wow. Meaning that you're like 50% more likely to live longer if you use a sauna. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy. And you think about it, cultures all over the world had some form of heat exposure, whether it was a sweat lodge or a finished sauna or stuff they had. They had saunas in Japan and all over the world traditions had these things. So it's like they knew either intuitively or it was passed down from someone else a long time ago. It was like, hey, do this to purify your body or whatever. And fasting too. If you look at fasting, like fasting has been in so many religions as a practice. It's like all these ancient things that they did. All of a sudden we're like, oh, wow. So it turns out that they were onto something, man. Yeah, right. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> for real. <laughs> I, would, is, I wonder if cold plunge falls in that too. Like, I wonder if 
in these old texts and stuff. I wonder if cold exposure has been a thing as much as like the sauna or maybe even fasting. Yeah. Have you guys seen anything like that in past texts? Yeah, I think like, I mean, in, in a lot of the Indian, like the continent, India, not Native American, but there's, they call it tapas, which is like a form of just, it's like a form of discipline controlled discipline and yeah i've seen it pop up it's just, yeah getting in like a cold river hmm. up to your neck and just yeah or you have monks that are meditating in the middle of the snow and so i think that's the form of it definitely it's like a form of restraint and control of your mind to endure that kind of stuff it's where i've seen it pop up i think Cold exposure, the cold plunge specifically, that seems to get me more jazzed up than any of them. When I'm coming out of a cold plunge, a cold river or something, like you are just alive and buzzing usually, just on just a clean, natural high. <laughs> I love doing it with other people too. Like we we did a cold exposure. We did a Wim Hof and then it was a group of like 10 of us. We did a Wim Hof and then hopped in this cold river together. and. I'll never forget it. It was so fun and just, it's a bonding experience when everyone's going into deep uncomfortability together and pushing those boundaries. And I'll, I'll never forget just, there was no really words going on. If anything, people were just hooting and hollering, but just looking at each other in the eyes and seeing the intensity of what was going on. And that's all you're doing is just locked eyes with each other, you know? And it's, it's a fun experience. I, would, I definitely have done a lot more river cold exposures than I have hopping into a cold plunge. Yeah, I have too. And it's, it's a lot. I don't know. I think if my cold plunge was outside, it'd be a lot easier for me to get in on a more regular basis. Cause then I'd just like hop in it. Be like, All right, now I'm in. And you got the sun waking you up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but as it is, I got to get in it slowly. Cause I don't want to splash it out into the room. And so it's. It's your place, yeah. man. I'd cannonball in that thing. <laughs> <laughs> then I got to clean it up. <laughs> so, yeah, but no, you're right. Because that time when we went and did that after the Wim Hof was, yeah, it's pretty powerful stuff. I feel like anything done in a group, it's like a lot easier to do it. Like when I hop in the sauna and I've got two or three other people to hang out in there with, I can be in there for a lot longer. But I tell you what, after I just did my first sauna after Vipassana last night, no, the night before last night, and I tried to sit for 20 minutes without moving. So hard, so hard. <laughs> it's so much easier to do an hour not moving outside of the sauna than 20 minutes not moving inside the sauna. It's. I can imagine, especially when you got the sweat rolling down in your eyes and all types of stuff. Oh, yeah. It's brutal. I don't know why you feel like you need to move, but it, I guess it's because there's just so much energy. You well, especially after yeah. a certain amount, it's like maybe the first five minutes or so, 10 minutes. But when you start getting hot, it's like the natural tendency is to just move out of being uncomfortable. Yeah. But yeah, if you guys are in Springfield, definitely go check out that Theta Float Spa. He's got something special going on there. It's a vibe in itself. It's, it's nice, man. It's, it's designed so that the second you walk in the door, you immediately feel your nervous system relax. And people do that on a daily basis. They'll walk in and they'll be like, oh, man, it's just like nice being in here. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> that's so cool to be able to provide a spot for people like that. And that's like a little reprieve. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm getting ready to put put one somewhere else. That's on the download for right now. So, yeah, excited yeah. about that. Excited yeah. to hear more. You know, taking your experience you already have and the foundation you've built. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be something to see. Well, Matt, thank you for us here, man. We we really appreciate you taking the time coming down here, and you're a wealth of knowledge, and we appreciate you sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you so much, dude. Really enjoyed it. It was very insightful to learn more about that meditation. Yeah, it's definitely. I've always heard about it, but I've never actually talked to someone that has went through it, especially so recently. So it's cool to be able to dive into your mind while it's so fresh. And so thank you for all your insights. Yeah, yeah. the next uh, Vipassana, you'll have to throw an invite over here. Oh, man. Yeah, I would love to. So you can do service after you've done one, you can go back and you can be a server at where you basically you do their three, three group sets a day. But in between those sets, you are making the food and stuff. You're being of service to the people doing the meditation. And so, yeah, I'm probably going to do one of those within the next year. But yeah, I'd like to do at least one 10 day a year and maybe eventually get to where I can do a 20 or a 30 day. I feel like there's more like tidbits of esoteric knowledge when you get to those levels but yeah i would love to man if you're ever signing up for one let me know definitely yeah i can only imagine after 10 days of what you were experiencing with i guess you could call them hallucinations damn what would 30 days look like wow that's what i'm saying yeah <laughs> yeah yeah thanks for having me here guys it's been a lot of fun and yeah, I've loved unpacking that with y'all and sharing that. And I just want everybody out there listening to know that they don't have any expectations. If you go to one of these Vipassanas, make it yours. My, my experience may not be your experience and that doesn't mean anything. The whole point is to fine tune your awareness and, and purify your mind and, and just continue leveling up in this life so you can be of service to the people around you as well as yourself that's what it seems to always come back to service i love service. it yeah, yeah me too thank you guys appreciate you yeah, yeah. all the love